going on, everybody? I'm Todd Golden. Matt. Hi, everybody. Um, That's Matt. Did you, en- did you enjoy the Super Bowl? Uh, yeah, well, let's tell people what we're listening to. We're listening to the uh, With a Bullet podcast. Um, mm-hmm. It is February, well, technically February 3rd, because we're recording this late. But yes, I did watch the Super Bowl. I, d- I did fall asleep during part of it, um, because I'm old and um, and old. But uh, yeah, it kind of went the way I thought it would. Patrick Mahomes uh, is a cheat code for football. So uh, right. Frisco's a good team, but he's difficult to keep down. Who's your favorite Kansas City Chief of all time? Favorite Kansas City Chief of all time? Uh, Christian Okoye. Okay. Not Barry Ward. What? Barry Ward, his partner. No, no. I think I'll roll with Bill Kenny, the quarterback in the 80s, who was mediocre. He's kind of the Lynn Dickey of the Chiefs. Okay. A big Lynn Dickey fan, just in case nobody knew that. But so anyway, enough sports. Uh, Let's go to the music. And. Mm We chose this one. We're doing, and we're escaping the Hot 100, uh, which we made a conscious choice to do Hot 100s early on, but then we we would decide to branch out a little bit after we did a few of those. Uh, Tell us all about what we're going to be breaking down this week. Well, we're breaking down um, the alternative chart from uh, February 11th, 1995, and um, this was kind of the high watermark of popularity for alternative rock. And a lot of these songs that we're going to be talking about um, have kind of graduated to the classic rock canon. And I was a junior in high school at the time. And this was basically what I was listening to. Um, yeah. Unlike some of our other charts where, especially the last one where I wasn't as much into pop at the time. If you were listening to Mariah Carey and, um, and Uchi Coochie um, and uh, hip hop and new Jack swing, that was, you were huge into that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you, you if you say so. Baggy pants and had a Wesley Snipes haircut. I remember I was there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I was uh, at the time I was I I was uh, actually taking a break from college. I took a year off, so that's where I was. So I so you and I were actually would have been living in the same place at at the mm-hmm. time that these songs were out. So it's chances are we probably argued over a lot of these. Not not that you and I have vastly different musical tastes, but um, sometimes when people have similar musical tastes, they tend to argue about stuff. So. Um, I don't know that we argued about all these songs, but perhaps some of them. So, um, yeah, I'll allow you to get started and, uh, let's roll with number 40, which is green mind by dink Northeast Ohio in the house. Oh gosh. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, to let people know we lived in at the time in, uh, Northeast Ohio. That's where Matt went to high school. I did not, but, um, but I lived there during summers and during the sabbatical I took from school. So, um, so yeah, we're familiar with the wares of, of, uh, the North coast. Let's see, but Dink were an industrial band from Kent, Ohio. They met at Kent state and I'm almost a hundred percent sure that they made it under the charts 
almost entirely due to airplay in Northeast Ohio because they're local heroes. And to top it off in the intro to the song, they sample um, Northeast Ohio car dealer named Bob Serpentini. And Serpentini was kind of ubiquitous on local radio at the time. Um, he used his ads kind of as a political soapbox and they kind of had a right-wing Rush Limbaugh Tea Party feel to them. And if you lived in the area like we did, you had to hear this guy at least 12 times a day. And um, this was the first time I'd heard this song since probably 1995. And I was surprised to, by how much it sounded like White Zombie, which I didn't really pick up at, at the time. But the one inter interview that I did find with the band, which was actually a transcript of an interview that they did with um, Cleveland Alternative Station 107.9 The End, um, they blamed the similarity for the reason why they haven't really picked up in other areas besides Cleveland. Yeah, well, the fact, the fact that they sucked had absolutely nothing to do with it. <laughs> probably not it's funny when but... bands say stuff like that like yeah man it was all because of uh this or that and it's just weren't very good yeah it's, yeah, it's, you... de it's definitely not great maybe it's because you briefly captured the zeitgeist and the zeitgeist decided that you sucked and they dropped you from the zeitgeist pretty much that was and... very pretentious of me to say it that way <laughs> But um, didn't really have that much long of a stay on the alternative charts. It only peaked at number 35. And it was actually on the soundtrack of a movie that we mentioned last week, uh, Mark Wahlberg's Fear. Jeez. Oh, so it so all that comes might have been the reason around. why it ended up on the charts. But God, I, I wouldn't think so. But yeah, that song was pretty bad. I listened to it. I was like, ugh, gross. <laughs> right see but let's move it along to number 39 for you which is um, violet by hole well this is gonna I, I hate to skip on my first song but this is gonna be a skip only because i actually have hole on my next uh entry so uh no need to to uh obsess over hole so this is a skip okay all right oh yeah duh. number 38 sorry <laughs> is uh roots radical by rancid Okay, and um, I kind of hated this song at the time because I was kind of getting into kind of 70s punk, and it was a pretty obvious ripoff of The Clash. And um, it, I mean, after listening to it again, it is a very obvious ripoff of The Clash, and I think they would admit it, but um, I'm okay with it now. It's a pretty fun song. And um, Tim Armstrong and Matt Freeman from Rancid were members of a couple of ska bands before they started up Rancid, um, Operation Ivy and the Dancehall Crackers. And because of their history, this album was part of a major label bidding war. And in the midst of this, they convinced one of the record exec executives to shave his head into a mohawk and they ultimately didn't sign with him because of that <laughs> and um supposedly madonna wanted them for her label and she sent them nudes 
I think I've heard that one before. <laughs> I don't know how I would have heard that, but I actually didn't mind Rancid. They were one of the very few of this so-called, I'm going to get into this later, but the so-called punk bands that, because I thought like, okay, you're right. They were definitely way derivative of the clash, but I didn't, I thought that was actually in a sense more genuine than the California punk that's to come later. That really isn't punk at all, but um, mm-hmm. so I kind of dug rancid and I do remember enjoying this song. So, um, so I was okay with them, but, but uh, I can understand why in your punk sensibility, uh, they would have offended your punk sensibilities. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm okay with them now. So Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 I don't think it's very well remembered, but it, it was all right. You know, it was, it was cool. Yep. See, but moving on here, um, we have 37 hole again for you um, asking for it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll double down on the hole, so to speak um, (laughs) with this one, since I had two in a row with the same artist, but asking for it is um, uh, Kurt Cobain actually sings background vocals on this, which I guarantee had a little bit to do with the fact that it's, charting because this is probably the least known of the songs um from uh from the uh, you know violet was a song that was uh um, Mm -hmm. well known but this one not as much i prefer this yeah i I don't even remember hearing this on the radio to tell you the truth yeah i actually prefer this song to violet because it's a little bit more tuneful but um and the album by the way was live through this is i i couldn't remember i didn't mm-hmm. got down what the album was but very critically acclaimed album by hole had a lot of hits off of it um i had a hard time with hole at the time because um i always felt like courtney loves notoriety and she had had some notoriety before she was married to kurt cobain because she was in the scene and all that um but I always thought her notoriety drove the band and not the other way around was kind of the way I felt back then. Um, I don't know whether that was justified or not. Um, whole, I think though, I will say this, they're very critically acclaimed and I don't know how, why they were, I'm not saying they were bad. They weren't bad, but let's hear this was a pretty good album. I, I, I actually still have the copy of that. Yeah. I, but I never understood why they were, you know, kind of the darlings of the rock critical media at the time. They were okay. I mean, there were some songs by Hole that I liked. There were some songs I thought were pretty painful to listen to. This song isn't one of them. This song's kind of in the middle, actually. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't really on board with Courtney Love as an artist, quote unquote, um, until she acted in The People versus Larry Flint. She was really good in that, I thought. Um, mm-hmm but I never got into hole. They just weren't my cup of tea. I'm not saying they were bad, but um, they weren't my thing. So uh, mm-hmm. they, they kind of uh, like benefited from the Cobain effect just after he, well, that, that was the other died. Part. Like anything that was related to him kind of got a boost. Yeah. And that was probably the other reason why I distrusted him because I'm like, okay, are you popular because you're riding the wave of Nirvana nostalgia are you riding the wave because whether Kurt Cobain had died or not, are you um, kind of riding on their coattails? That was another reason I kind of distrusted Hole and Courtney Love generally. Um, So all that kind of played into my mind at the time. They're not a band I seek out, so I can't say like I've 
reappraise them or anything like that. Um, but this song was okay. I mean, it's, uh, I, like I said, I like it better than Violet. And um, I think Miss World was on the charts like right before this one. Uh, yeah, that's that, a, that was the that was the first single I think off of this album. Still hanging around that song. I did. I didn't mind that song. It was okay. But um, so I was kind of ambivalent about Hole. That was kind of my feeling on it. But mm-hmm. moving on, number thirty six. This song I really did like at the time is uh, "Little Bastard" by the Ass Ponies, which is a great name for a band, by the way. Right, and this is another kind of obscure Ohio band. Um, these guys were from Cincinnati, and most of the members attended the University of Cincinnati. Go Bearcats! Yeah, and I wasn't I wasn't really that big of a fan of this song at the time, and I think a lot of that had to do with lead singer Chuck Cleaver's voice. Um, his voice kind of alternates between. Um, a high-pitched warble similar to Dave Thomas from Perubu and something similar to Michael Stipe. And it wasn't something that I was used to hearing on the radio. And now, 25 years down the road, I kind of love it, actually. It's um, Forgotten Gem. Um, ended up peaking at 26 on the alternative chart. And it appears in the movie... Uh, Empire Records, but it didn't make the soundtrack album. And Cleaver is still active in the Cincinnati music scene. He um, fronts a band called Wussy, and they're actually on a label that's owned by the record store that I used to shop at in college. Is he part of the? Is he part of the Wussification of America? <laughs> um, based on pictures that I've seen of him, it doesn't really look like it. He's still kind of a big burly guy. I, I think so. I think you took that way too literally, but um, yeah, I know, I know. Actually, it's weird that you say that you kind of love this song. I don't. I I certainly do like this song. At the time, I loved this song because I lived. Matt, as he mentioned, ultimately went to the University of Cincinnati. He was not there at at this time. I was closer to there, so I would. I, I went to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, which is the the Harvard of Delaware County. Um, <laughs> and um so we would pick up on cincinnati like the alternative station we got uh was from miami of ohio or miami university um 97 x yeah i think so so they picked up on okay. cincinnati bands and because oxford ohio is right up the road from cincinnati and so i heard this song quite a bit and that sound was pretty prevalent in the midwest muncie itself had a band that sounded like the ass ponies called they they were they were called the Y Store, and they had one hit. They, I saw them live a ton of times. They were their their hit wasn't very good. I don't even remember what it was called. But anyway, they I think it was Lack of Water or something like that. I don't know. It was forgettable. But um, right. So I really loved this song, and I what I loved about it was the, um, was the the bridge to the chorus. They they just did a good. It was very abrupt. Um, and the guitars kind of kick in. And like you said, his voice, the other person, he sounds like a little bit. And I hate to criticize him because I'm not a fan of this band, but he also has some Dave Matthews in his voice as well. Uh, with the, he goes from high pitch to, you know, he, he it's yeah, kind of, it's range, kind of, it's range, but it's not range. If you know what I mean? I mean, it's almost like it's atonal on purpose, but 
anyway, the chorus of this song is great. I loved this song at the time. I probably actually don't love it as much as I used to. I think it sounds, I don't want to say dated, but it sounds to me like Spin Doctors um, rehashed a little bit. And I'm going to talk. Is that because of like the wah-wah guitar on it or? You know, which at the time I liked because at the time it was a contemporary sound. Now it's not. And um, so I think in that respect, it definitely is of its time. And I'm going to talk a little bit about later how alternative music, you know, people talk about it as basically grunge during this era. There was a shitload of different uh, forms of alternative music. And this was one of them. Yeah, it was a big tent. It's very back then. Yeah. And so I've almost put this one, they weren't a jam band, but they were in that this song is in that jam band mode of alternative though. Um mm-hmm. so cool song though. And I'm I was actually very surprised to see that it charted at all because my assumption was always that it was a regional hit, but clearly mm-hmm. had, and I forgot it was on the Empire Records soundtrack or or in the movie, not on the soundtrack, but anyway, right. cool that, that song uh got some dap though right let's see well let's move on to 35 here which is about a girl by nirvana and i'm assuming this was the unplugged version yeah it is and this is my second skip and again um i have an unplugged nirvana later so kind of like whole i don't want to repeat a bunch of stuff so i'm gonna skip this one it's a good song but um no need to rehash a bunch of stuff so Moving okay. on to your next song would be number 34, Hold On by Sarah McLaughlin, um, which uh, is there any ASPCA? <laughs> no, no. I, this this is this is actually my first skip. Um, there's some Mc, Sarah McLaughlin songs that I don't mind, but wasn't really too familiar with this. But I mean, I suppose she's nice to dogs. So she is good for her. She enjoys <laughs> animals and you know what i've wondered about those ac acpsa commercials is why the cameramen who are filming all these sad animals go save the goddamn sad sad animals go (laughs) like well can you imagine being the i hate to go on a tangent here but can you imagine being the person directing the commercial it's like okay we need to go feed these dogs because they're really suffering no 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 wait we don't have the shot yet he needs to suffer a little bit longer (laughs) seriously It's not cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. Sarah McLaughlin has nothing to do with the way they direct these commercials, just so people know. But no, no. Let's see, but let's move on to thirty-three then. Um, Howla by Mazzy Star. So this is the first single that Mazzy Star had after "Fade Into You," which is their which is their best known song, and um, it's a cool song. But you can hear the limitations of Mazzy Star because. And this was their last alternative hit. They never had another one um, because it sounds very similar to Fade Into You. That kind of, and this is where I wanted to get into the wings of alternative. Um, Mazzy Star and some other bands like them, um, Cowboy Junkies jump to mind, are definitely in the Velvet Underground school of alternative. There are a lot of bands that were influenced by Velvet Underground, which is understandable. Velvet Underground were a damn good band. Um, but they were, they weren't the only ones who were like that. They, there was a certain sound that kind of ethereal, uh, and it's, and it's inspired by the later period of Velvet Underground, not so much their experimental period with John Cale, more, right. more loaded era Velvet Underground. But, um, Mazzy Star was definitely 
that i mean fade into you was a great song that was a cool song yeah it is it is so in my opinion and you can add to these if you want matt but there were these various schools of alternative rock there was the one i just mentioned velvet underground there was grunge of like pure grunge like seattle grunge um jam rock which we mentioned the ass ponies but more like dave matthews band fish um spin doctors probably blues traveler would be in that mode uh right there's riot girl like l7 um industrial nine inch nails ministry Mm -hmm. power pop matthew sweet um uh you know teenage fan club that kind of stuff there was yeah commercial alternative bands who probably originally did a different genre and then switched to quote unquote alternative for commercial reasons like Candlebox or uh Collective Soul. So there was uh Bush probably. Yeah, although Bush was a little harder than those bands. I mean stuff that would be acceptable to be like girls would want to listen to it basically. So mm-hmm. you know, stuff that crossed over. There was British alternative, which that's a whole there's probably many wings of that. Um, yeah, Brit Brit pop definitely. And then which yeah. And then later on, and we're getting into that era with this chart, punk alternative. So you mm-hmm. know, people and also kind of like indie rock type stuff, which didn't really make it onto the charts. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Kind of like guided by voices and that kind of thing. Or and another one I didn't mention is lo-fi like pavement. That would be enough. Yeah. Thing. But I, I think, you know, since we're 25 years down the line, I think people associate that era purely with grunge. And those bands were big, but. I think people forget, especially people who weren't around back then, you know, there was a lot of, it was, like you said, it was a big tent. So Mazzy, mm-hmm. Mazzy star fit into the edge of that tent, you know, with kind of the VU influence. So, mm-hmm. but moving on number 32 for you is 21st century digital boy by bad religion. Yeah, this is a skip. I've never really liked this band or this song. So um just moving along here and would definitely be in the uh bands who did a different genre that suddenly became alternative because i think they were more hard rock when they because i kind of remember them earlier but anyway well well they were i mean they were like an 80s hardcore band yeah 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 see but um yeah well moving on moving along here um 31 i saw the light by the the or the the it's a, i think it's the the but <laughs> okay this is from the hanky panky album which was a co- album by the the consisting entirely of hank williams covers and um um the the was one of those bands where and they've been around for a while they they went back into the 80s um but they were one of those bands where i go to a record store and i'd see po and this wasn't just in in Ohio. This would have been in, at at college or wherever I happened to be, and I'd see posters of them. Like they might have had a new album out or something like that. And I'd see posters of the the all over the place. Like like when we used to go to Quonset Hut in Akron or mm-hmm. Canton, um, I'd see the the posters all over the place, and I was like, okay, am I missing the boat on this? I can't, mm. I don't know anybody to this day who was a the the fan and i'm not saying they were a bad band i never mm-hmm. I, I i never I, I they may have been on 120 minutes once in a while on mtv 
but they didn't really get a whole lot of rotation play because um, video <clears throat> MTV was basically still the original, more or less the original MTV at this point. They still were predominantly videos. And uh, <clears throat> I don't recall the, the being all that getting all that much traction there. So they're one. Of, yeah, not really outside of 120 minutes. Yeah, they're so. one of those bands that just kind of escaped me and seemed to be in the ether all the time. And I was like, OK. But I never once met a single fan of that band. But this song isn't bad, though. I mean, it was it's OK. It's yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. Moving on for you. Number 30 is Now They'll Sleep by Belly. Let's see. And this is this is another skip third in a row. Um, let's see. I didn't really mind Belly, but I don't really remember hearing this song at all. Um Tanya Donnelly was an original member of the Breeder, so I guess that's cool. But yeah, I liked her. I liked Belly. Just skipping this one. <laughs> yeah, but I I I listened to this song because I didn't remember it, and I was like, oh. now I kind of I know why. But right, that moves on to your. You get the first long distance dedication this week. What do we got? Okay, um, let's see. My long distance dedication this week, and since. There was only 40 songs on the alternative chart where we made up a rule where we could go either a month forward and pick something that wasn't on the 40 or a month backward and pick something that wasn't Cause on the Because we're, we're time travelers. Right. And in this case, we're traveling into the future. Um, this made its debut at number 39 on the alternative chart in March 11th, 1995. And it's against the seventies by Mike Watt. And Mike Watt was the bass player for legendary eighties underground band, the Minutemen. And this was the first single off of his ball hog and tugboat album, which was kind of an alt rock all-star album. And this song featured Eddie Vedder on vocals and Dave Grohl on drums, which was about as close as you could get to a Nirvana Pearl Jam collaboration at this point. And the song itself is not that great, but I just like to set, send this out to all the people from the eighties underground who are still kind of putzing around in the mid nineties. Um, REM, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., um, the Meat Puppets, the Butthole Surfers, uh, Paul Westerberg, Bob Mould, Glenn Danzig, Henry Rollins, Glenn McKenzie. How'd you throw him in there? Who? Glenn Danzig. He was the lead singer of The Misfits. I know he was, but... I'm... Yeah, and he had a hit like a week after this on the alternative chart. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but anyway, these are the people who... like did the groundwork to make the rise of alternative rock possible. That's and I'd also like to dedicate this to all of the UCD store staples, since he could probably find at least three copies of this album at every used record store to this day. Yeah. For like a dollar or so. Yeah. It's amazing how all those nineties bands that were pretty revered are a lot of them are cut out bin material these days. So that's what happens when you get old. Right. Yep. Mind your some of your bands you liked are in the cutout bin. It's like yep. like going to the grave before you go go to the grave yourself. Pretty much. Yeah. Yep. Such a happy thought. 
And with that, we'll go into a song about the Troubles. Um, number 29, um, Zombie by the Cranberries. I think it's funny that you're laughing at that because nothing is funnier than the Troubles uh, in Ireland. But right, this is where the Cranberries, This by now they were a year past um, Linger, which was their first hit, which I love Linger. That's That was such a cool um, ethereal song. And really the Cranberries... Um, I guess you could lump them in with British alternative. I, I mean, that's kind of an insult to Irish people, but, uh, mm-hmm. but by, by now they were a year past, they had had several hits and zombie is where I kind of, they kind of scared the shit out of me. I mean, um, you know, I, I think to the linger video, which was beautiful and black and white, I think, I still think that's one of the cooler looking videos of all time, but, you know, kind of pixie-ish and very beautiful in her Irishness and all that and then all of a sudden in this video she looks like she's a fucking game of thrones victim i mean she's in like gold like <laughs> dumped gold on her or something i mean she's in like <laughs> or it could be goldfinger she's like in goldfinger body paint and <clears throat> some sort of typical shadowy 90s conceptual visual art you know trying to convey the horror of the troubles i guess is what they were getting across there was also footage of soldiers walking around in um, Belfast and all that in the video. Um, I, I never really could, I, for some reason I can never get into this song. I, it just, uh, it, it just didn't hit me. I, it's not a bad song, but it just never, uh, it, it didn't, it didn't speak to me, even though I'm, we were both half Irish, but uh, right. so this is where I was like, you know, maybe maybe it's my fault because it's like you hear the first song by a band. I know a lot of people are guilty of this and I'm no different. And it's like, wow, that's really a cool sound that they that they created, like with like with Linger. And then all of a sudden they're you know, this song's a hard rock song. And I'm like, oh man, I don't really picture the cranberries as a hard rock band. So that's mm-hmm. that's probably on me more so than them. So anyway, but yes, it was about the troubles which were about to be um over actually um <laughs> so but um so yeah it was uh it was uh it's it the video scared me it didn't right it didn't really scare See, me. there was a really bad like metal cover of this out a couple of years ago and they kind of like excised like all the references to the troubles <laughs> like instead of 1916 they said 2016 yeah. so I, I love it when bands like completely wipe out the intent of the song. That's always beautiful. But right. moving on, number 28 this week is Got Me Wrong by Alice in Chains. See, and this was originally on um, an EP that they put out in 1992, and it was re recorded for the Clerk soundtrack. And I seem to remember there being a video. <laughs> where they had, I don't think Alice in Chains was in it, but it had, like, the cast of Clerks in it. But it's not on YouTube, so who knows if I'm just imagining this. I think you were, uh, I think you were high. Eh, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's mostly acoustic, and it switches to electric on the choruses, which is kind of typical of a lot of Alice in Chains songs. Yeah. Um, this isn't like one of their hard rocking type songs, but um, 
not really that much of a fan of it. I mean, you still hear it on classic rock stations every once in a while. What? And it actually did better on the rock chart than the alternative chart. It made um, number seven on the rock chart and only um, 22 on the alternative. Yeah, Allison Chains was for classic rock stations in the 90s was a lot more palatable for some reason than Nirvana or um, some of the other alternative bands. Pearl Jam was too. But for whatever reason, classic rock fans seem to really gravitate to Alice in Chains. Not really sure why, but... I, I think it was... I mean, they were they're a little bit more metal sounding than... They, they, were, they probably did keep the pretense of metal to some degree in their songs. And... Lane Staley's voice was definitely the most, I guess, Chris Cornell, you know, he would have a, he has a metal voice for sure, but. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. It was Lane Staley. And, you know, they, they probably though kept kind of the pretenses like we're, we're a hard rock, even though they did, like you mentioned, had it several acoustic songs, but they did mm-hmm. to me to be like, they still kept their foot in the metal uh, door to some degree. Right see and let's see moving on to 27 here we have um bright yellow gun by throwing muses yeah this is a skip for me because it's just kind of pro forma jangle pop um you know nothing really memorable about it although the video does feature chimps just so you know okay i i don't even remember the video for this i i didn't either until i looked it up so it's not okay but uh Number 26 for you is Whip Smart by Liz Fair. Let's see. And not many people remember how big of a deal Liz Fair was at the time. Um, her album before this, um, Exile on Guyville, was very highly regarded in the music press at the time. Um, she was still on an indie label, Matador, and she managed to go gold and still got played on the radio, even though. She was on an indie label. And the distributed uh, distribution deals that Matador worked out for her um, basically ended up bankrolling a lot of their artists, um, which at the time were Pavement, Guided by Voices, Yola Tango, which were kind of ended up being like canonical um, indie rock artists. And um, she was important and um she tried to go pop in the early 2000s and basically disappeared off the face of the earth after that and the last i heard about her was probably about a decade ago when she kind of put out a rap album almost as a joke and um anyway um this song wasn't nearly as big of a hit as supernova was which was on the same album as this and um, actually, Malcolm McLaren, who was the Sex Pistols manager, ended up getting a co-writing credit for this because um, she quoted the verse of his song Double Dutch. Hmm. But um, in Malcolm McLaren's version, an African choir singing it in Liz Fair, it's just Liz Fair kind of saying it in her boring Liz Fair voice. Yeah, that was the only thing that bugged me about Liz Fair is that she kind of had this affectation that, and she wasn't a professional, you know, she didn't start out as a professional artist. I mean, she was 
kind of hanging out with some of the Chicago bands and eventually kind of got into it. But that was the only thing that I, excellent Guyville is a, is a really good album, but her kind of almost detached um, tone that she had would always kind of bug me a little bit about her, but, <clears throat> and this song, I barely remember at all, but um, you know, but I, I dug exile and Guyville. That was one that that truly was an underground album that eventually kind of reached um you know people our age through word of mouth really i mean it did get yeah it got critically acclaimed but that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to buy it so um it took time Mm -hmm. for that album to kind of uh penetrate its way into the consciousness but but pretty good pretty good album i haven't listened to it in a long time but it's it's pretty good Mm -hmm. so see see well number 25 for you would be piggy by nine inch nails yeah this is a skip you know why because fuck nine inch nails boring okay go on and on but i won't because i just i don't have a whole lot of love for nine inch nails so Trent Reznor actually had wrote a number one hit last year that's good for him so um old town road is based on a nine inch nails jesus now i hate that even more um Number 24 for you is Interstate Love Song by Stone Temple Pilots. Okay, and this probably evokes the mid-90s more than any other song for me because it was played practically every half half hour for like two years straight. And Stone Temple Pilots definitely were not seen as cool at the time, especially at my high school. Um, But when Scott Weiland died, you started to see a lot of closet stone temple pilots fans come out of the woodwork and they they were a great radio band they put out a lot of great singles and i mean they should be remembered for that and probably deserve to have all the fans i mean obviously they did have fans because they're like going platinum with everything but i mean it wasn't public people weren't being public about being stone temple pilots fans but um one thing that I didn't know before we started doing this is that they kind of borrowed the chords for this off of um, I Got a Name by Jim Croce. And it was kind of one of those things like I read it and then I went and listened to a song and I was like, oh, yeah, I never noticed that. Or, hmm. so, I'll have to go listen to that, even though I'll get my shot. I'm not going to go on and on. I'll get my shot at Stone Temple Pilots later because I have one of their songs as well but um but yeah they were they have an interesting legacy so Let's see okay um 23 um plowed by sponge well if you heard this song like today you'd probably recognize it and then you'd instantly forget about it because this is kind of a good example of by 95, the alternative assembly line was cranking from the record companies in terms of just churning out product. It happens with every movement. Um, you know, it happened with R&B in the 60s, disco, uh, metal, hair metal. You know, eventually after the initial movement that gets people interested and is usually better, um, you know, of course, record companies want to find copycat bands so they can continue to... Um, make money and i'm not saying sponge itself was a copycat band necessarily but this song was just it's straight out of the collective soul 
candle box playbook. It's just not very good. And it has that kind of mid nineties alternative guitar, but kind of pop alternative guitar to it. So yeah, um, eventually when record companies never seem to learn this, when they saturate the market with crap like this, it eventually kills the golden goose, which, you know, a lot, pretty much a lot of this, the, you know, the movement, the alternative movement, a lot of the songs that we're talking about, many of these artists and many of this, of the style of music that, uh, you know, that the styles of music that are represented on on this chart were pretty much over within about a year or two after we're doing this, probably about a year. Hmm. And because other things came in or just get, people got tired of it. And so it's songs like this, that kind of uh, uh, represent like the end of a movement. You don't know it at the time, but um, you kind of know it now. So, Right. Sorry, Sponge. It, it kind of died out like it kind of died out like as I was going to college, actually. Yeah, I mean, like, even kind by, of in the summer of '96, even by the latter part of '95 and and definitely in '96, a lot of these bands were um, not going to be relevant even on the alternative chart anymore. So um, people got tired of it. They got tired of grunge. They got tired of. Um, you know, unfortunately, and some some good bands were left behind, and some bad ones were too. So, moving on. <laughs> speaking of bad bands, in my opinion, your song number twenty two, "I Alone" by Live. And Live have aged very poorly. Um, probably <laughs> they worse than any other band that was they, popular they around this. Time. They didn't start at a very good point to begin with. Yeah, that's true, but it was more palatable at the time, and they're almost too earnest. Um, They're trying to be spiritual and profound. Um, Ed Kowalczyk was really into Eastern philosophy, and it just kind of ended up being dumb. And um, the video for this is one of the most unintentionally hilarious videos ever made. Um, The whole thing looked like it made about Looks uh, looked like it was cost maybe about twenty bucks to make. Um, had fisheye lens. Um, there was kind of like a fake dead tree in the background. Um, the band was playing, but the drummer didn't have his drum kit, so he was just kind of running around. Yeah, that's right. I do remember that. And, that was funny at the time. I mean, and Ed Kowalczyk was kind of like mugging for the camera. And he had like a dumb like braid kind of rat tail thing going. And now that you mention that, I believe this is the the reason the drummer was running around, if I remember right, because this was in the kind of the music media at the time, is because he forgot to bring his drum kit. So they just kind of had that is right. That is correct. Kind of yeah, improvise so to speak. Let's see, yep. And to quote Butthead from Beavis and Butthead, who is. One of the best music critics of the 90s. Yeah, he's pretty good. And this is a direct quote. These guys are Jack Butt Munch ass dumb butts. <laughs> I'm not going to argue that. I, live to me, and I actually, you say that, you know, there's actually, they have quite a fan base, actually, which just disappoints me to no end. They're, they're just pseudo-intellectual bullshit. And I, I felt that way at the time, and I feel that way even more so now. You know, there's some bands that you are like, oh, okay, I was too harsh, or, or you know, maybe I was wrong about them. Don't feel that way at all about live. They were just garbage. 
And in a way, they were kind of their brand of, like you said, very overly earnest uh, mm-hmm. rock. You could draw a direct line to Creed from. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. No question about it. They just uh, couldn't stand them back then. So, right. See, well, let's move along to another kind of shitty band. Um, number 21, Collective Soul with Jeff. We're just full of sunshine today. And <laughs> left and right. No, 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 uh, you know, uh, um, you know, looking back appreciation of these bands. No reappraisals. These bands just suck in our mind. But, uh, actually, I agree with you that Collective Soul, I don't know that they sucked just so much as that they were just kind of there. It was, again, another band that was more or less, con- uh, they weren't concocted by the record company, but, you know, it's like, let's throw this out there. It's the most bland version of alternative that we can sell records with. That, that's what Collective Soul, they were very inoffensive, which is mm-hmm. the point. But actually, this, though, was the one song by them I didn't mind. I'm not going to sit here and say that I loved it, but it at least was catchy and and some you know it had a chorus that was a little bit more live than their usual kind of bland choruses. But uh, mm-hmm. you know it it was it it was it was more up tempo than most of their songs were. And the bonus is that it's from the movie Jerky Boys, which I know you. Were- <laughs> oh God! But you know, but but to go back to the suckiness of Collective Soul, I mean. This says it all about how some bands just where they came, where they were coming from and all that. They're the name Collective Soul is actually from uh, um, from uh, the Fountainhead, you know, from uh, oh from In Rand. So you know, it's like get the fuck out of my face. That's right. Shit. So anyway, it, this is actually probably their best song, but that's damning with faint praise because they didn't have many good songs. So. Right. Matt and I are just not about the commercial. Uh, if you, those of you listening to this are like, oh my God, how come they don't like live or collective soul? Those bands rocked. It's like, ooh, we're not, we're not of that mind. So, um, <laughs> so I believe my long distance dedication is next. You're, you're correct. Yeah. So I'm also going to the same chart you did. We're going into the future um, to March 11th. And this is the debut of. Sick of Myself by Matthew Sweet, which, ooh, the, I, I thought you were going to pick this one. Yeah, that's pretty predictable because I've always professed a huge love for that song. Really enjoy Matthew Sweet. Hundred Percent Fun is the album that this is from, and it's a great album. I mean, both of us um, are fans of of power pop, and power pop has had various waves um, over the years, going back to the you know really the Beatles are the first power pop band, but um, you know, there was a wave of power pop in the early 70s, the late 70s, the 80s. And then Matthew Sweet probably best embodies power pop of the 90s. And I think this is this would have been a month into the future from now anyway, my favorite song. And it remains so for several um, months, actually. And um, <clears throat> just an absolutely, you know, catchy, uh, great guitar song. I think it's the best song of 95, if not maybe even the best song of the 90s, period. That's how, much, that's how I love this song. So always been one of my favorites, but I'll dedicate it to power pop as a genre, 
dedicated to Matthew Sweet, who is probably never really considered cool, but I thought he was cool. Um, mm-hmm. I think that he had, I was one of them. He had like a lot of closet fans. He did actually did get a lot of play on MTV. So it's not like he was under, yeah, he did anything like that. But, um, but you know, people didn't go around saying, um, man, I'm a Matthew Sweet fan. He was always kind of a little bit like that under the radar artist or band that is there, but you know, isn't going to generate uh, passionate fans until later. And then you talk to people who's like, yeah, I, you know, uh, Girlfriend was a great album. I really, uh, I really like them. So shout out to Matthew Sweet. Shout out to Power Pop. Shout out to Sick of Myself, which just has unbelievable guitar on it. That's a just, I love that song. So, right. This is my chance to uh, give it its due. So Moving on from my long distance dedication, Matt, number 20 for you is number one blind by Veruca Salt. Okay, and this is a skip. Um, if it were Seether, I probably would have done it. I don't remember hearing this song at all. Um, so it's it's a skip. <laughs> yep. Named after the uh, the bitchy character in Willy Wonka, though. I always thought that was kind of cool. Right. And the fact that I think their EP after this was was called blow it out your ass it's veruca salt yeah they were wearing toilet paper on the cover if i remember <laughs> correctly I, I don't think i've ever heard a song off of it but i i did yeah, i did either i i did enjoy the album title though yeah see but moving on to 19 then um fell on black days by Soundgarden. well it's the fifth single from super unknown which was uh really the breakthrough for Soundgarden. i mean they they had a decent fan base before that, but that's where they really became big, uh, among, you know, a mass popularity, uh, size fan base. And, um, I, I don't know, this song's okay. It's average. I always thought this album itself was overrated. Um, mm-hmm. I had listened to the only song I really liked off of super unknown was black hole sun, black hole sun. It was played a lot, but it was, it was a good song. I mean, kind of in the, Soundgarden mode. I had already been listening to Soundgarden at this point. Um, <laughs> my opinion, Bad Motorfinger is like ten times better than Super Unknown because it's it's true grunge. It's really hard. And uh, if I didn't have a cold right now, which you may be able to pick up on here, I'd uh, do Chris Cornell's scream from uh, Jesus Christ pose, which that song. <laughs> but um, I wasn't. I thought Super Unknown was where. Um, you know, un- subconsciously, I was like, maybe grunge is getting, you know, maybe a little bit too big. And I'm not saying like I anticipated the backlash, but um, I just didn't think that this was all that great. I, I, I it, maybe it is, maybe I just missed the boat, but super unknown kind of left me cold a little bit for some reason. See, I, I like this song more than Black Hole Sun. Actually, I, I actually like this one quite a bit and had a video where it was actually performed live which was kind of cool at the time yeah so but moving on number 18 is here and now by letters to cleo (laughs) okay and this was kind of a flash in the pan group and for the past week todd has been bringing them up yes i have because First of all, I, I do remember this band and, you know, the chorus is built around 
uh, basically the the female lead singer going zaba daba 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 da zaba daba 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 da more or less right that that's not a verbatim quote but pretty pretty close to it but... we were for some reason we were discussing letters to Cleo and my thing is I told Matt this when we discussed it that they sound like a band they both both in the way they sound and in the their band name everything their image. They look like a band that was made up to be on an episode of Friends. Let's see. And, well, the funny thing is that this song was actually on the soundtrack for Melrose Place. (laughs) There you go. And it kind of got a boost from that. Um, They were from Boston, and they got their name because um, the lead singer, Kate Hanley, had a pen pal named Cleo. And she sent letters, and they kept getting returned. So it kind of stuck in her mind as a band name. And they had, like, one minor hit after this. And then they appeared in um, the teen movie, Ten Things I Hate About You. And they kind of disappeared after that. And um, Hanley shifted to children's music. And she kind of has a voice for children's music. Yeah. And she sang the theme songs to My Friend Tigger and Pooh, My Friends Tigger and Pooh, and Care Bears Oopsie Does It. I think I've actually seen that movie. Okay. My kids were younger. Right. And we, we since... had we had the whole Care Bear, we had a Care Bear marathon once. Oh kids, god. It's really great <laughs> Care Bears. Let's see. And since we watched the Super Bowl tonight, uh, I should probably mention that she regularly performs the national anthem at Patriots games. And at, at one point they had an eight game winning streak while she was singing. But that probably has a lot more to do with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick than her. to Cleo had everything to do with that. They might <laughs> have everything to do with the Patriots dynasty, but I, I, this song is easy to make fun of because it's kind of a relic of its time. It's actually not even that bad of a song. I mean, it's, it's fine. You know, right, but it's uh, you know, like I said, and everything you just said just fed my whole impression that they were invented by friends. <laughs> okay, I know they weren't, but it sounds like they were. Right. See, well, let's move to seventeen, which is unglued by Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. So now I get my shot at Stone Temple Pilots. First of all, this song kicks ass, and this probably. There's a song coming up that may that would have been competed with for my favorite song on this list because um, it seemed like Stone Temple Pilots. My impression at the time was that they would have two mediocre to shitty songs, and then they would have one song that would really be good. That seemed to be the kind of track they were on at this point. And I looked it up. I looked up their discography, and I. I had some things mixed up. I, I, I had forgotten that Vaseline came out before this song. Um, mm-hmm. It was on the Purple album, um, which I, I Vaseline was probably the first. Well, I, if you go back further, um, uh, sex type thing when it came out, I, I did kind of like that because it sounded, you know, that was at the beginning of grunge and all mm-hmm. it, it fit. Um but everything they put out after that, I disliked until Vaseline, which was a pretty decent song. And then Interstate Love Song was like, okay, they're on their track again with more mediocrity. Um, 
but then they came out with this and this song actually does sound a little bit like sex type thing at least in terms of the riff and uh, i remember hearing this on the radio i was like what the fuck is this this rocks you know i mean it was more straight ahead rock than even like the grunge is i mean it's mm-hmm. a vein of uh you know uh you know it doesn't sound like led zeppelin but it's in like the vein of their you know more popish type songs mm-hmm. what we didn't know at the time is that um stone temple pilots was kind of breaking out of their the purple album which is what this was on was sort of they were breaking away from being a band that would i would be i would consider commercial alternative to kind of creating their own uh sound to a degree because after this uh maybe a year or so later they came out with um the tiny music and the vatican gift shop album which Mm -hmm. actually has that's actually a pretty good album i mean Big Bang Baby was the single from that and Lady Picture Show. Those are both great songs. Right. So yep. Don't Temple Pilots, for me, is one of the very few bands that kind of defeated their my initial first impression of them as kind of mediocre and got better, in my opinion, with time. Sort of the way you were talking about them earlier. Mm-hmm. And this song was probably the first clue to that for me because this song, just it's just a straight-up balls-out rock song. And um, with a really good, uh, you know, it just starts, it just starts off right away with the, with the main uh, riff of the song on the, on the rhythm, you know, the rhythm guitar riff. So um, thumbs up to Stone Temple Pilots. They got better as they went along. Um, they kind of created their own image. Of course, Scott Weiland had plenty of problems in his life, you know, with drugs and things like that. But, um, you know, they won me over eventually. So good for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Number 16 is uh, She Don't Use Jelly by The Flaming Lips. And I hated this song at the time. I mean, really hated it. It's um, kind of a novelty song. And if you had told me at the time that The Flaming Lips would still have like a career 25 years later, I probably would have laughed at you. I don't know if The Flaming Lips would have believed that either, to be perfectly honest. Right. And it's... Um, even though it's not a novelty song and not really representative of the rest of their music, um, they still kind of embraced it and they still play it regularly at their live shows. And um, when that song was at its peak, um, the band appeared on Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> and um, Wayne Coyne, the lead singer, said that they accepted the offer because they thought it would be ridiculous absurd and funny and they also assumed that they'd be cut from the episode because it was a total train wreck and it led to um (laughs) the line from um ian zeering who was playing steve sanders who said after their performance you know i've never been a fan of alternative music but these guys rock the house (laughs) did you find a clip of that I, I did, I did, and um, Wayne, there's, I also found an interview of Wayne Coyne where he was kind of asked about this, and um, he mentioned that Zeering kind of, like, hung around the band, um, that he was actually, like, one of the only cast members who was a fan of the band, and he kind of latched onto him because they snuck booze onto the set, and basically 
hung out with them to steal their booze, I guess. They should have had the flaming lips on the revival, the very short-lived revival of 90210. That would have been funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But you're right. This song, it, se- it, you know, it seemed like garbage at the time. And based on a lot of the other Flaming Lips stuff that the more the you know the the more critically appraised stuff they put out in the 2000s it is garbage but the problem for me was being a little older this was my impression of the Flaming Lips for like 20 years I was like oh they're the dopey ass band that did you know she don't use jelly and mm-hmm. it probably prevented me from until a lot later I actually heard their uh you know their peak period you have those albums from the uh, right thousands it took me like 20 years to catch up because they actually are really good it's just yeah this wasn't very good so and they they kind of like intentionally try to get rid of their pop audience after this because the album that they put out directly after this was Zyreka, which is three different cds and it's all like the same album on each cd and the trick of it is you're supposed to have three CD players and play it all at once. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was kind of mix it yourself. And I have a copy, and I, I mean, I don't have three D CD players, so I mean, I've tried to like mix it before, but it doesn't work. You don't. Have, you don't have three CD players. Well, I mean, I don't think I do either. Not right. that. Not that work anyway. <laughs> So let's move on here to 15, which is The Man Who Sold the World by Nirvana. Yep. So like I I skipped earlier um, about a girl because I knew I would have this, uh, which is also from the Unplugged album, which was um, which was a huge album for Nirvana. Of course, kind of riding the coattails of Kurt Cobain's suicide. But it was also, you know, by almost everybody's uh, uh, reckoning was a great album in its own right um i think this song is superior to the david bowie version it's a david bowie cover um I, i'd agree with that yeah david bowie's the the man who sold the world album is is not it's uneven i think is the kind but you can see though how it influenced nirvana it has like the the man who sold the world sound even bowie's version sounds like you know like proto nirvana but um, but the thing was, is that the thing that, uh, you know, apart from Nirvana unplugged itself was probably the one nineties music phenomenon that bridged the gap between, uh, you know, Gen X grunge generation and, uh, and the, and baby boomer rock, because for example, I believe you had this album, you had Nirvana unplugged. If I, I did. Yeah. Our dad had Eric Clapton unplugged. If I remember correctly and you know you had a lot of modern bands who embraced the unplugged concept as well as a lot of you know uh 70s and 80s bands who either went back to their acoustic sound i remember rod stewart doing an unplugged um so he could whip out like gasoline alley period stuff and his Mm -hmm. contemporary shit that he was doing at the time and then you could have nirvana on there or um Pearl Jam on there or something like that. So it was an interesting concept that really tied together a bunch of musical generations. And I think Nirvana's probably along with Eric Clapton's was the most popular in terms of 
records that they churned out. But it was for a while there, it was like, you know, hey, everybody, let's everybody go and play. Neil Young was another one. Of course, his whole musical was <laughs> kind of switching back and forth between electric and acoustic. So it was an interesting <laughs> movement. Um, a lot of good music came out of it. And certainly Nirvana, um, you know, the, the, in hindsight, the cool thing about the Unplugged Nirvana album is that it gives you uh, kind of a different thing in your palate as opposed to, you know, In Utero or Nevermind or Bleach. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of to Nirvana as like for the Rolling Stones, they have their late 70s, um, you know, faster rock. And then they have their more acoustic stuff like from Exile and Amazing. Mm-hmm. So gave nirvana a chance to have a different sound and in hindsight yeah there there were a lot of covers on it so they were kind of showcasing some of their influences like bowie um a couple meat puppet songs on there the meat puppets were actually on the show with yeah but i mean most people weren't picking up on the fact that they were doing meat puppets covers i mean it was i guess the way i'm looking at it is that it gave them a chance to have a different sounding album but still be good and so that's probably the legacy of uh of that album so moving on um 14 another seattle band corduroy from pearl jam let's see ed this was written kind of as an attack on the music industry and fame in general um not for you which was from the same album had the same sort of theme but a lot of people probably didn't pick up on that because who knows what Eddie's singing half the time. It is not for you. I forgot about it, actually. <laughs> right. And they're also in the midst of their lawsuit against Ticketmaster. So they're just kind of going for the whole anti-corporate thing. And the title of this was inspired by Eddie spotting a copy of um, his corduroy jacket um, that he bought for 12 bucks at a thrift store. Um, selling for six hundred and fifty dollars in a magazine. So Yeah. By um, by now we're talking about like, you know, grunge had gone commercial and that kind of stuff was happening. Yeah. Let's see. And it it's one of the better songs from Vitology and it's become a classic rock staple, like a lot of Pearl Jam songs from this period. Um Pearl Jam ended up being kind of a good fit for classical yeah, rock. Because they were aping a lot of classic rock bands i mean you know made sense but actually though this is my favorite pearl jam song i think this song's great this probably would have been my favorite song of the songs that are on this chart you know i know i went on and on about sick of myself on my dedication but this song i actually listened to it today and i still love this song quite a bit it's it's uh probably the passion that eddie sings with and the song is part of it and the guitars in it are really good Especially like the last verse where they they transition into the verse with a slide guitar just out of nowhere. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So, and I was down with Pearl Jam at the time. I was down with all the Ticketmaster stuff. It was like they, I felt like at the time, like they're like, yeah, all right, I, I can, I'm totally with this. And then like within a year or two later, mm-hmm. I couldn't have cared less about Pearl Jam. I, I'm not saying they're bad. Right. You know, it, it seemed like they they kind of got tired of being, you know, like trying to be a voice of a generation type of band. Right. So, 
I still like to see him live, though. I'll, you know, it'd be a cool show. Right. Yep. Let's see, but moving on here, we got um, "Bang and Blame" by REM. This is my last skip, and it's not because um, I, I was a fan of the, the Monster era of REM. Splits a lot of opinion. Some people think it's embarrassing. Some people think it's great. I liked Monster myself. I thought it was. I went back to a harder edge sound that they had, you know, in the eighties, but this song in particular though is not my favorite from it. I just, it, it's just kind of boring. So I'll just, hmm. just leave it there. Okay. Yeah. I've always, I've always liked this one. But... Disagree. Oh. Look. Okay. Okay. Um, for you, number 12 is Ode to My Family by the aforementioned Cranberries. And I'm skipping this one. It's um, ballad. It's kind of similar to Linger. Um, don't really have too much to say about it. It's kind so. of a cliche. Like a lot of commercials have used that song. Yeah. Didn't one yeah, of the, right. like, like one of the uh, ancestral, like ancestry.com or somebody like that use it? I, I think you're right about that. Yep. So, yeah, it's kind of become a cliche. Let's see. Yep. And <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Well, let's move along to number 11 here, which um, kind of a surprise to see out here, but um, She's a River by Simple Minds. Yeah. So I was surprised to see it too. And I have very little to no recollection of this song. So you might be thinking, I wonder what Simple Minds would sound like if you transported them into the midnight. Well, pretty much exactly what you'd expect. I mean, has a little bit more guitar and a little less synthesizer, you know, to sound contemporary. But it's the same singer. It even has uh, similar background singers to something like Alive and Kicking. Um, it's pretty much Simple Minds transported 10 years into the future it's not a bad song it's not a great song um i've always been kind of ambivalent about simple minds anyway but uh, mm -hmm. nothing wrong with it and once i heard it i did kind of remember i was like oh yeah simple minds did kind of have a little revival there in the mid 90s but um and occasionally you'd see like 80s bands pop up on alternative radio like i know adam ant had a single yes he did i noticed it was on alternative radio for a while and... I, I do not remember that song but um Tear tears for fears had a song that was on alternative radio for see, a tears while. for fears for me would translate better to alternative radio they were kind of alternative before it had a name kind of in some respects i thought they sounded a lot different in 85 than a lot of other bands that were on the radio at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah. So, but anyway, this is if uh, not simple minds like breakfast club, uh, don't you forget about me? Simple minds more alive and kicking simple minds transported 10 years later. So mm -hmm. if you like simple minds, you probably like it. If you were don't pretty forgettable. Mm -hmm. That leads us to number 10 strong enough by Cheryl Crow. Let's see, and this kind of goes into the big tent thing. Um, Cheryl Crow did actually get played a lot on alt-rock radio, and it seems really weird now. And this actually is the only song that made it higher on the Hot 100 than on the alternative chart. Um, it made it to number five. Um, 
this was its peak on the alternative chart, and um, this is off her first album, and there's kind of a backstory about how the album came about. Um, it was called Tuesday Night Music Club, and the Tuesday Night Music Club was a jam session between kind of journeyman session guys in L.A., which didn't include Cheryl Crow, but did include her boyfriend at the time. And she had a record contract, but her album had been rejected. So she was kind of in a jam, and she kind of went to her boyfriend going and went, hey, why don't you and your friends help me out with this album? And they kind of reluctantly went along with it. And they ended up writing the lion's share of the album, including this song. And Crow didn't really contribute that much and was still um, credited because, I mean, she was the artist and technically she was part of this group. But she ended up with, like, a bigger share of the royalties. And um, the album came out and there was a couple hit singles before this. Um Leaving Las Vegas, All I Want to Do. And the band's excited. I mean, it wasn't like what they were intending to do, but I mean, they were part of like a big album and they were expecting to go on tour and everything. And then at the last moment, Cheryl just fires all of them, dumps her boyfriend, gets a new band. Yeah, I kind of remember that. I'd forgotten about that. But yeah, now that you mention it, I kind of sort of remember that. But I can understand why she was played on alternative radio, because all I want to do, I think, was the first hit, if I remember right. And, you know, it had that. That's a cool song. I like that song to this day. I mean, it's had that kind of boozy hanging out at the bar. I mean, that's what that song is about. Yeah. Um, Vibe to it. And, you know, people liked it. And, you know, it had just enough of a sound to it where you could played on alternative radio so i had no issues with cheryl crow really for the first year or two of her career then she kind of went commercial to a bigger degree but um, Mm -hmm. you know so i mean it's it's not a terrible song by any means i mean it's it's decent i guess yeah but um let's see here number nine we have lightning crashes by live well, I've already made my thoughts clear on live. Um, <laughs> I, I and the notes I do for the for the charts, I only have one word by this song, and that's horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember right, this song was about abortion in some respect. It might have even been anti-abortion and reincarnation. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't doesn't really. <laughs> It could be about UFOs. It's just, a, again, another overly dramatic, shitty song that some people responded to because people's are, people are suckers for songs like that. But I'll just leave it succinct. It was horseshit. Okay. So okay. moving on, number eight, Buddy Holly from Weezer. See, <laughs> and I really love this song at the time, and it's hard to admit that I was a Weezer fan because everything that they've put out in the past 20 years or so has been kind of embarrassing. But anyway, I bought this album shortly after this came out as a single and it's the only time I've ever been mocked by a record store clerk. 
And um, from what I remember, the guy said, ooh, Weezer. And kind of turned to the other clerk and said, hey, this guy's buying Weezer. <laughs> Where was this at? It was, it was at the Quonset Hut in Canton. And um, they don't sell records anymore. Um, technically, they're still in business, but they only sell bongs. Right. It's, Which they sold. Um, yeah. It was actually almost left off of the Blue Album. Um, they submitted a demo to Rick Ocasek, who was a producer, and he thought it was going to be a huge hit. And the band wasn't convinced, and he basically nagged them to come up with a final version of it. And um, you can't really mention this song without bringing up the Happy Days video, um, which exists because of 90s nostalgia for the 70s. And since Happy Days existed in the 70s because of 50s nostalgia, it's kind of like a Russian doll of nostalgia. Yeah, it is. And somebody really should have just remade the thing in 2015 to keep it going. But it was... Actually, the third idea that Spike Jones came to him with, and the band didn't think it was that he was going to be able to pull it off, but he did, and it's kind of like an iconic video of the '90s, and it was oh, yeah. included as part of Windows '95. So, See, but anyway, this ended up peaking at number two on the alternative chart. Um, also kind of crossed over to the top 40. Um, it's number 18 on the airplay chart. So now kind of Weezer's we, big hits. Weezer is where you and I definitely have some, some uh, uh, disagreements on, because I remember you were big into Weezer. A lot of people were big into Weezer. This album was their, their blue album uh, was extremely popular. And I remember going to visit you at Cincinnati a couple years later and um, somehow I saw this album in, among your CDs and you were like, oh, Weezer, fuck Weezer. And I'm like, what? Fuck Weezer. What's wrong with Weezer? And I don't remember what your points were at the time, but um, I thought that this album never deserved to be. Um, and I think part of your point was, well, they were that wasn't their original sound and they just adopted it for commercial purposes, which I don't know, that may have been true. Mm -hmm. um, I always thought that this album was very unfairly, unfairly maligned. I think it's a great album to this day. I never, never, never thought it wasn't. And maybe it's cause I'm a little older. And then the, the scene that came next probably never really did come next for me. Cause I kind of checked out of current music, you know, within a five year period after this, but um, I always thought the, I, I thought the reaction to this album was where I started to question hipsters and stuff like that. I was like, what are you not seeing in this album? It's tuneful. It rocks. It's a good, it's a good power pop album. Definitely more power than pop. Rick O'Kane mm -hmm. got a great sound out of the band. That's what I always liked about this album. They just, um, between this and the, and the sweater song, you mm -hmm. know, good sounding hard rock and i that's how i viewed it i didn't view it as some sort of like weezer has to meet my critical bona fides i never thought of them that way i just thought they were just good roll and so i guess what I, what i'm but I mean, I mean i i still kind of like this song i still kind of like sweater song but i mean everything that came after this album i see i, I, I would necessarily agree with that i 
I, I know they went more pop, um, but um, I actually don't have a problem with Beverly Hills. It's okay. <laughs> so, so fuck you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> See, well, let's go to number seven here, which is um, got to get away by the offspring. Yeah. So the offspring are one of the bands and green day, which we'll address shortly is another one that would be considered quote unquote punk bands from the, like I mentioned earlier, the punk wing of the alternative movement. Um, and, and this would be the start of it. Rancid, Rancid, I always thought was a little different because they really did sound like a punk band. Um, but Blink-182 would come later, um, among others. And I got to say, I never understood why this was ever considered to be punk in the first place. The Offspring, to me, don't sound like punk at all. I always thought that that was some horseshit. Right. <laughs> yeah. They wanted to put up more hard rock. Well, and I always thought it was it was uh, contrived because it was like a label they put on themselves to sound cool instead of actually, you know, and they had some of the, you know, the iconography with the tattoos and some of the bands kind of aped some of the look of the punk bands of the 70s. Um, but that whole SoCal punk thing, I never understood why that was ever considered punk. It's just hard rock. Yeah. Oh, so I know I sound a little bit like an old man yelling at a cloud, but um, I never once considered the offspring punk. I mean, I just, I just didn't get that at all. But mm-hmm. wasn't a fan of this song. This is where I think, to some degree, the punk alternative wing is where alternative started to kind of exit stage left a little bit. At least as far as I was concerned. Maybe it's because I didn't really care for a lot of those bands. But mm-hmm. um, so. You know, the, I, I I mean I don't really like the Offspring at all, but this is I probably consider this their best song. No, I think you consider Pretty Fly for a White Guy their best song. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind that song. That song's, you know, it's uh, of course much like um, uh, play that funky music is hooked on White Boy. So was Pretty Fly for a White Guy, but I actually didn't. That that was the one song of theirs I actually. Halfway, I'm not saying I. Oh God! Oh God! Yeah, and SoCal punk. (laughs) Moving on, number six for you, a different movement. Um, Everything Zen by Bush. Let's see. I didn't really like this song or this band. Um, They seemed like grunge opportunity, grunge opportunists, and the whole thing was kind of fake and. They were kind of a band that started out with a different song, so they um, were kind of that, actually. And originally, they... I mean, I haven't heard any of their early stuff, but they supposedly sounded like NXS. And um didn't really make any sense to me that they were popular. Um, I just didn't get it. They sounded very... Most of their songs sounded very samey to me. Yeah, yeah. They never really deviated from their... You know, they, they were they were in the you're right, they were grunge opportunists. They were sort of in the Led Zeppelinish wing of alternative for sure. Mm-hmm. But they never really but it's like it'd be like if you were a Led Zeppelin uh if you were copying them and all you ever did was very various versions of custard pie or something like that. 
mm-hmm. never deviate. Like you never like, okay, I like Led Zeppelin. I'm going to do like a, a song like cover pie or custard pie, but I'm also going to do a song like the, or um, like no quarter or, or immigrant song, you know, songs that don't sound like custard pie, but they just decided to stick with like one derivative sound, which made them even worse in my mind. I mean, they were, they were derivative and boring. Right. And kind of like the opportunist thing, I think their last, very last album, they tried to go kind of electronic too. Yeah. So, but um, the one thing that was kind of interesting about them is that um, they're from the UK, but they're basically total unknowns in the UK and they were huge in the US. And I'm thinking that was just because they didn't really fit into like the Brit pop sound of the time. No, not even close. Yeah. You weren't going to hear this on train spotting. No, definitely not. So, <laughs> but um, kind of going into the British sound of the time, um, number five is Sour Times by Portishead. I was really surprised that this got as high on the alternative chart as it was. Maybe I missed the boat on Portishead. I do remember seeing this video a decent amount at the time, but I never got the sense that this was a song that had penetrated the consciousness, even the alternative consciousness to the point where it would be number five, but there it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and Portishead was um, not a band that was easily like graspable either. It's not like they were radio friendly. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're very um, downbeat um, bordering on some of the electronic stuff, but not quite more of a mood band kind of, um, Definitely not. I would not, you know, this is one band that I did learn to appreciate later. I mean, definitely not a band I would have gravitated to in 95 for sure. I would have been like, what is this pretentious shit? That would have been my attitude at the time. Actually don't mind Portishead now. I've gone back and listened to some of it and Mm -hmm. you know, it's definitely music. It's, it's, it's probably one of the few songs on here that you could consider musically sophisticated too, which most alternative music was not. You know, and, and that's not a knock on alternative music, but a lot of it was kind of a get back to basics type of ethos to it. You know, you didn't, and that's not to say that some of the songs weren't complicated, but um, this song definitely sounds like um, almost like a wing of sophistipop, like what it would turn into um, after some of those 80s bands in a way. So mm-hmm. um, I didn't get it at the time, but. I kind of get it now. A pretty good band. So, see, and it kind of has like um, kind of a spy movie type of type of feel to it, like James Bond theme, or it does, like Ennio Morricone type stuff. And, and I would not have picked up on that at the time either. And my musical taste at the time had not advanced to the point where I would have appreciated that. So, <laughs> you're right. There's a kind of it does sound like it would be like an outtake from the. Uh, you only live twice album or something like that, but I wouldn't have understood the nostalgia of that, which I don't think they were going for anyway, but <laughs> I wouldn't have appreciated how it sounds like that back in 95. So it took me a little while to catch up with Portishead, but they're a pretty good band. Mm-hmm. Moving on another British band that was much bigger um, on both coasts. Um, number four is live forever by Oasis. Yep. And Noel Gallagher claims that 
the lyrics of this were written as a response to uh, a Nirvana B-side, which was called um, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. But I, I have my doubts about that because they were recording this album at the same time that was released. It was released on the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack. But anyway, like his whole sentiment was like, you know, I hate myself and I want to die. Screw that. I want to live forever. And um, which and Noel Gallagher and Liam Gallagher are still very much alive. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but th- this was kind of their first big hit on U.S. radio. And it was also their first top 10 in the UK. They became huge in the UK. Um but um, there were two versions of the video. Um, the British version had them burying their drummer alive in a garden, which I don't remember ever seeing. But um, the American version is kind of a takeoff on um, a scene from the movie Performance where Mick Jagger's performing um, Memo from Turner, um, where he's sitting behind a desk and there's kind of like a um, a light swinging above him and in the video they have Liam Gallagher doing it and there's kind of like pictures of like pop icons and um, Bobby Moore from the English soccer team kind of like their pictures popping up just kind of like um, icons that yeah. in their mind will live forever. No, nobody, so. nobody would have picked up on that tribute back then that's for sure. I mean and very few would pick up on it now. I mean, you know, not many people have seen the movie performance, but I'll have to go back and watch that video. I, I, that never occurred to me, but um, it doesn't surprise me that the Gallaghers might make up some shit to explain a song because they were. Um, oh, yeah, they were full of shit yeah. about everything. <laughs> so, were they in full on war with Blur at this point already? I, I don't think that had started yet. I, I think. Blur actually had a chart hit probably a couple weeks after this, but this was before like they came out and said that Blur were and this is an actual quote cunts. Yeah. <laughs> so it had like started up in earnest, I guess. That's a word so. they say in England a lot, as I know through experience on uh speaking with English people once in a while. But I, Oasis is another band that's kind of a signpost to the end of alternative. They became a big thing for, I don't know, maybe a year. And, um, you know, but they weren't an alternative band. I mean, they were played by alternative radio, but, you know, they're not in the same, they're, they're barely in that tent we were talking about. So, mm-hmm. um, but um, they were big, um, they were big Manchester city fans. Yeah. Yeah. They even, um, sponsored Manchester City for right. a while in the night. Back when Manchester City was shit, when they were more lovable. But um, yeah, so. <laughs> Let's see. Well, number three, another English band, um, Stone Roses with Love Spreads. <clears throat> this is another one I'm kind of surprised it's as high as it is on the chart. Stone Roses, this was considered a sort of comeback for them because in the early part of the 90s, they uh, had some hits and they were definitely more of a straight up power pop band in that period. Um, this is more hard rocking, very 
uh, prominent slide guitar in it. It actually kind of cops uh, Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Uh, <laughs> so this was considered a, you know, Stone Roses return to form, I guess. I don't know how big Stone Roses ever were in the U.S. They're another band that was much bigger in the U.K., but, um, you know, pretty cool song. I don't mind the Stone Roses. They're pretty good. So, but, mm-hmm. but not a song that I'm going to go to go find either i mean it's just kind of it's kind of there so right yeah exactly it also has a sort of uh cure feel to it a little bit too like later period cure yeah yeah a little bit so moving on your last song of the day number two is better man by pearl jam see and this is um I, I always kind of call this can't find a Bedouin or can't fight a Bedouin. Yep. Because that's kind of what it sounds like Eddie's singing. Well, and I used to say it all the time. <laughs> I used to make fun of you and say, because we'd hear this on the radio and I'd say, can't find a Bedouin. And you'd be like, shut up. <laughs> let's see. <laughs> but um, let's see. Eddie wrote this when he was in high school and um, the tune is loosely based on Save It For Later by the English Beat. And that's like another thing, kind of like the Stone Temple Pilots, Jim Croce thing, where I read it and then I went back and listened to it. It's like, oh yeah, it does kind of sound like that. But it was originally recorded for the Versus album. And um, Eddie thought it was too mainstream and didn't want to put it out. And actually thought about giving the song away um, because he was afraid of them becoming more pop than they already were. He was kind of weary of becoming a bigger star after Jeremy was such a huge hit. Well, he doesn't seem to worry about that a couple years after that, but. Right. But um, like Corduroy, it's still on classic rock radio all the time. Um kind of a staple of it so well it's on vitology which i think vitology is by far their best album um i know 10 is their one that broke them and then you had versus in between i have uh, versus was pretty uneven as an album i thought but it was vitology is basically their magnum opus i think um most of their good songs that kind of hold up 25 years later are on that album so and better man's it, it's it's a it's a good song. I mean, it was it was played oh, it was overplayed at the time. I mean, on pretty much everything. So it was it was it is easy to get tired of it. But um, mm-hmm. but it's a good song. I mean, and that period of Pearl Jam was worthy of being remembered fondly. So mm-hmm. Let's see, well, we're to number one here. So <laughs> drum roll. When I Come Around by Green Day. Well, okay. So me and Green Day back in this period of time were not going to be friends. I really hated Green Day at the time. I had a, I just thought at the time that they were fakes. And I thought that whole, as I mentioned earlier, the whole punk movement, I just didn't care for it. I, I didn't think. And I thought Green Day was kind of taking all the easy parts of punk and making it commercial and to some degree i still have an animus 
towards that period of their catalog. Plus Green Day's image was they were very trading. They're very much traded in the kind of image the Sex Pistols were putting out as being defiant and um, being uncouth and stuff like that. And I just never bought it. I always thought it was just, I thought it was contrived for, um, you know, for an image. I don't mind Green Day as much now. I mean, I think as they developed, they basically became a rock band, really. And some of the later stuff, I don't mind at all. Some of it I even like, but um, I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm kind of the opposite of that because I really liked Dookie at the time. Yeah, you and I used to battle over Dookie. I, and I don't really like any of their later stuff. So, well, what do you think about it now? I, I mean, I haven't revisited it. I mean, a lot of the better songs on that weren't released as singles. But I mean, if I went back and listened to it, I'd probably enjoy it, probably just for nostalgia. But yeah, you and I used to argue about Dookie because I I hated it. I didn't like. And then after a while, you like make up your mind about a band. And then no matter what they put out, you're like, well, this is bullshit, you know? And I think everybody is like that to, to a degree and I'm no different. And so I still, you know, I think back to like, like they're, you know, they're farting on record and stuff like that, which the sex pistols did, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, just that whole, I, I was never into that whole thing about punk, even among the original punk bands, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, I didn't like them at the time. I probably, if I were to go back and listen to Dookie, I probably would like it a little bit better, but I would still, there's still that part of me that is like, I still feel like this bullshit is for an image and not necessarily genuine. Even if you know what I know later that Green Day later became, you know, a little bit more respected and, you know, more strident and believable in what they were putting out. But Mm-hmm. didn't really get it in 95 you know it just uh and and also you know part of it was i was into the clash i was into to some degree the sex pistols at the time and the other part of it is i just thought they were you know just copying that sound so mm-hmm. you know but i was in the minority i certainly most people really enjoyed green day and um certainly they're they remain popular you know for 20 years after this so uh, right so i guess you could say i missed the boat on that but okay i don't really regret it right so well that does it for this week matt yeah through 95 um so here's what we have on tap next week it's my pick and okay we're going to the album chart which i've been looking forward to going to the album chart the album chart's gonna be fun okay I decided to go whole hog with this. We're going to the beginning of the LP period. We're going to go with February 15th, 1969. Okay. Going into the 60s for the first time, my friend. And, you know, LPs were not really, didn't really become the dominant form of how you bought music until about right at this period. So there's a weird mix of like classic albums that people know about and shit that has been completely forgotten about so have fun researching that you also have okay unlike this week you have a much wider range of long distance dedication possibilities because it's the top 200 so so you'll have fun digging into that so okay 
that's it for this week. We're done with uh, with a bullet. Matt, go enjoy the Chiefs Super Bowl victory. Okay, I, I will. Um, congratulations to Kansas City. Yep. You know, <laughs> you they they the 49ers spared the Packers from uh, getting beaten in the Super Bowl, in a sense. For, I, I think you're right about that. Yep. They, they, that's my silver lining of a pretty gray cloud. So, right. Anyway, that's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Yep. Bye, everyone.